Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to chat. My name is Brian Kearney. I hope you're all doing well. Hope you've all had a decent start to 2023. This is the first podcast that I've done in almost a year. And with the return of the international events and the world returning to something resembling normality, it meant that I simply didn't have the time to record any more episodes during the last 12 months. Plus, I was in a far better place mentally and physically, and I didn't really have as many things to complain about. But in this episode today, this is one that I've wanted to do for a long time. But it was one that I didn't really want to talk about until I had the ending that I really wanted. So people that follow me on social media will probably know that I became a father for the first time in September 2022 to a little girl called Kaya. And it took a very, very long time to get to that stage. This podcast today is the complete story from start to finish because it certainly was not an easy time. The subject fertility is quite a sensitive subject for a lot of people. And if you've listened to previous episodes of this show, you will know that I have spoken about it in the past, in particular about the miscarriage that we experienced in September 2021. I'm also going to tell the full story of being diagnosed with kidney cancer in 2020, the effect that I had on me and everything in between. So it's my first time speaking about this in detail, but I do feel like it's a story that needs to be told and it's one that I am delighted to share with you today. This is my first time doing this podcast in over a year, so forgive me if there's a few mistakes, if I mix up my words, if it's a little bit rough around the ed- edges, etc., just like that. But anyway, let's get into it. And this is the story of one of the most challenging periods of my entire life. In August 2017, we started the process of starting a family. We're sort of oblivious to what really, uh, all that really entailed. We all, we just, we sort of had this belief that it just happened straight away. But from our experiences over the past few years, we've learned that it certainly does not happen straight away and that some people face more difficulties than other people. Where do we even begin with this? So yeah, in August 2017, we began. So Adele went to her GP and she explained the situation. So the doctor, she did some blood tests on her to check her hormones. And there was one hormone showing up slightly higher than normal. Uh, so she ran another blood test to check that Adele was ovulating and that result came back fine. And it showed that she was ovulating as normal. So she asked me to come in to get my... Uh, to have an analysis done on, on my situation. So I booked in for an appointment and my results were were pretty bad, uh, unfortunately. So the doctor wanted me to repeat the test just to make sure there was no errors with the test itself. So I repeated again and it came back with the same result. So the the, the sperm count, I'm going to get getting into the uh, scientific part of it here. So the sperm count wasn't too bad, but the motility of the, the analysis was uh, fairly disastrous, to be honest. So the sperms are supposed to swim progressively towards the egg and my ones weren't moving or else they were going around in circles. And um, now we had our answer as to why this wasn't happening for us. So uh, the GP referred us to a fertility clinic and we went to the clinic and Edel had to have a procedure done where they checked their ovaries and their tubes to make sure everything was working okay on the on the female side. So everything looked fine on her end. I repeated the analysis for the clinic and my results were the same as before. And um, I remember meeting with the doctor and she told us out straight that we wouldn't be able to have children naturally and that we would have to go down the IVF route if we um, wanted to have a child. Now, this really did come as quite a shock to both of us and we were both pretty upset by this. And me, myself, I started to experience a lot of guilt and I felt like it was all my fault and it was pretty hard to take. But for both of us, I think we were quite naive about the whole situation at that time. 
and we were under the impression that you just you give them a load of money you do the IVF and then nine months later you'd have the baby but how wrong we were but um, we didn't want to start IVF at that stage so we sort of did some research on ways to improve my situation so I started taking supplements I started putting the laptop anywhere near my lap which is for anyone listening in men especially do not put a laptop anywhere near your balls it is absolutely disastrous for them you need to keep yourself cool you need to keep the that area down there as cool as possible it's very very important for men especially if you are trying to have a family keep those things as cold as you can because heat is a killer so yeah you just yeah that that would be my advice keep those keep those bad boys cool because you need to really need to do that so uh, a while passed then I'll never forget it in July 2018 I came out in the gym I walked into the kitchen and I was listening to a podcast and the guy doing the podcast was interviewing uh, the creator of Father Ted and the guy that he was talking to the fellow who created Father Ted was talking about his experience with testicular cancer so while I was listening to it I needed to go to the toilet so I went into the toilet and I, I I sort of always really sort of check myself quite regularly for lumps, any any kind of things like that. I've sort of, I've always been like that. I check myself and the left-hand side, my left testicle was like twice the size of my, my right-hand side of my right testicle. And I just couldn't believe it that I discovered this, that one side of my testicles was twice the size of the other one as I was listening to a podcast with a fella that was talking about his experience with testicular cancer. So straight away, I was I was terrified. No idea what it was. I went, I did, did the worst thing possible, which was went on to Dr. Google and sort of looked it up. And I came across this thing, which uh, sort of described what it was. Now, I couldn't really feel the testicle. It was sort of like everything surrounding the testicle had got bigger. It was like a, an enlarged, it was like, it was nearly like a bag of worms. It's a, I know it's a strange description, but it was like something was surrounding my testicle. It was like a, a vein, was it a large vein or it was like, it was like extra fluid or something. So what I could read about, it, it was either something called a varicocele, which is like a, an enlarged vein that surrounds your testicle, or it could have been a thing called a hydrocele which is like a fluid which can surround the um, testicle. And that, that that's it uh, sort of gave me a little bit of like I wasn't as worried because I sort of saw that right, maybe it was that. But at the same time, I, I didn't know. I had no idea what it was. And I, I was terrified. I just remember that night being just crying because I'd, I'd, no, I'd no idea what it was and, and I straight away that day I'd made an appointment with my doctor to sort of find out what it was so I went into him the next day and he examined me and he uh, sort of he put my mind at ease and he said look it's a it's, it's something called a varicocele it's it's actually something that's quite common uh, I think around 15 to 20 percent of males will, will have it and it's something that ca- can be caused by weight training and weight training is something that I do uh, quite regularly so it could be something to do with that so that was that was fine all good sort of put my mind at, mind at ease so what he did was he referred me to a hospital for an ultrasound so I didn't really uh, didn't really think too much about it and I remember it the day that I went to do the ultrasound it was a day it was, it was the day before sorry sorry as I said I'm getting a little bit mixed up here I'm trying to sort of 
bring this all to the surface and talk about it. So if I mix my words up a little bit, I apologise. And also, if I say the word so a lot, I apologise for that as well. I have an awful habit of saying the word so during this podcast. So there's just two things I'm going to apologise. But anyway, went to the hospital uh, for my ultrasounds just to check around the testicles, make sure everything was was okay, any lumps or bumps or any of that sort of stuff. And as I was sitting in the uh, waiting room, I got a text from Adele to let me know that this girl from, she's sort of a friend of Adele's cousin, but she's a girl that would have gone to the gigs that we played for years. She just literally, she had died of cancer that morning or she died that morning now. So I, I might be speculating. I think it was cancer that she had and she had passed away and like she was literally in her early to mid thirties. So I was like, Jesus, I'm sitting here waiting to go in for an ultrasound and I've just got this message. Like that's, I hope I'm all right. But anyway, I went in, he scanned me and he said, oh no, you're fine. It's just, it, it's, it is something called a varicocele. There's, there's things you can do to sort of um, fix it or treat it or whatever. It's, it's all right. You don't need to worry about it. So I was heading away on the holidays that day. And I'll, I'll always remember that day because for anyone who has heard the, the acoustic mix of All Over Again, the acoustic mix of All Over Again was a track that I made for that girl's uh, funeral. The, the, her friends, who are Del's cousin, had been in touch and they said that was her favourite song. Was there like uh, another version that they could play at the funeral? So I was sitting in the airport. I actually made the track on Ableton on my laptop in the airport and I sent it over to him and that was the version that was played at her funeral. But anyway, moving on, didn't really give too much concern to it, but it was, it, it was like, I, I once I found out it was quite common, I was like, fair enough. I actually spoke to a couple of my friends. They said they had exactly the same thing and they've been to a doctor and all about it. And it's just so, something they sort of live with. But um, just to be safe and from what I had learned as well, having a varicocele can impact on your ability to have a kid. So what I was trying to do was I was trying to give myself the best opportunity to to have a kid. So I wanted to look into the everything I could to improve my situation. So I made an appointment with a urologist and he said to me, right, the best thing to do is to undergo a, something called a varicocele embolization, which is where like the tie tie off the veins leading into where the varicocele is in, around where your testicles are so that should stop the flow and in turn the varicocele should disappear so fair enough booked it in and then in January 2019 I went into hospital to get it done got it done drove home and I just had like a couple of weeks recovery now it wasn't it wasn't too bad in terms of recovery I was a little bit sore of course it just felt like there was someone sort of inside me pulling at me but that was just from the the little procedure that I had. Over the next couple of weeks, I noticed that my my testicles had started resemble something looking like they were before instead of one of them being twice the size as the other one, which is what I had become. I went back for my follow-up with the, the chap who uh, carried out the procedure and he, he did a scan, everything was fine, everything was clear and he said I had um, cleared up. And I always remember it was Valentine's Day 2019 and even though he told me that it was a success and everything was fine I just remember walking out of that hospital and this feeling of anxiety just came over me and I really did not know why Um, he had just told me that everything was fine the scanners went well but like I could just feel this sense of stress or anxiety within me rise and then over the next few weeks day by day 
it just felt like it was getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And it just felt like, I don't know, it just felt like something was, uh, something wasn't right, even though I had got that news. We took a break from trying to conceive because we were getting married in June. Around the end of March, beginning of April, I noticed that the varicocele on my left hand side had returned. So I, I, I instantly uh, contacted the um, office of the guy who had performed the embolization. And uh, he told me to come in and uh, he'd take a look at it and did another ultrasound. And he said that, oh, yeah, right, okay, it's it's after coming back and this can happen in up to uh, 20% of the procedures. And he sort of just apologised and said, there's, there's not much you can really do. And again, just felt like something something wasn't right. And over the, the next month, next few weeks, I had like chronic levels of anxiety now I thought it might have been because I was getting married I was getting a little bit nervous and having to speak in front of people and all that the usual pre-wedding nerves all that I thought it was just that but it was it just intensified every single day I just felt like it was just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and I was spending most of my days listening to like various forms of self-help and like psychology stuff and all anything I could do to sort of change how I was feeling and to rewire my brain and to trying to understand what was going on inside me. I just felt like there was an alarm going off inside me and I was under constant threat and I was in fight or flight mode and I'd racing thoughts and my OCD was out of control and I was getting intrusive thoughts and it was it was fairly intense. I was there, I, has, like, I, have, to, I have to look into this. There, there, there's, something, there's something not right here. So I went for a, a full blood analysis to see if there was anything showing up that shouldn't have been, anything showing up that was high or anything like that and the bloods were fine and then I went to see a nutritional therapist and talked to her and described how I was feeling and I, I wanted to, I just wanted to see if I could decrease the level of stress within me and uh, she told me that I was suffering from something called adrenal adrenal fatigue, adrenal fatigue, adrenal fatigue, which is like your body's like extra stress. So she recommended me a couple of health supplements and all that sort of stuff to go on, which I did and they helped. But again, it just um, felt really so confusing really really confusing I was probably in the best physical shape I'd ever been in I did a, a, a test with her and she told me I had a metabolic age of 21 now I was 36 at the time so again things just weren't adding up I just felt like the, my body was trying to tell me something but it couldn't tell me what it was and I just couldn't make um, any sense of what it was so then in June we got married, went off on honeymoon and when we were on our honeymoon we started the process of trying, there's that word again, I hate it, trying to have a baby again and again nothing was happening so a couple of months went past with no success and I decided to go for another test to see what my results were like and I went back for another one and my results were drastically lower than previous results. In fact they could not have been worse than what they were. I was basically infertile and my chances of ever having a kid were basically non-existent non-existent and I just nothing made nothing made any sense to me I felt so much shame and so much guilt and I felt like it was all my fault like we were trying to start a family and I felt like it was my fault because my body wasn't able to do it and I'd undergone a procedure to improve it I was doing everything I was being healthy I was I couldn't have been doing more to sort of change my situation and to make it happen and 
everything had gone the other way. It got worse, and, and none of it had made none of it made any sense. So what I did was, I went into another period of extreme health where I took it to an even greater extreme. I gave up drinking, cleaned up my diet even more, which I don't even know how I could. Have really done at that stage and I basically lived like a monk for a couple of months and in that time we were obviously still trying and every month you have that couple of days and you've that couple of days of hope and then it's dashed again and it just felt like it was a waste of time and and on top of the shame and the guilt that I was feeling because I felt like it was my fault was that underneath was that constant feeling of anxiety that my body was telling me that something wasn't right and I just couldn't make any sense of it. Obviously, after doing that, another couple of months of extreme health, all that type of stuff, doing everything I could, taking more supplements, looking into what I could take to improve the situation, I went for another uh, sample to get it checked, and it was still the same. Hadn't improved at all. I, in fact, I think it had got a little bit worse. And I just could not make any sense of it. And as I was dropping my sample in, my best mate was in the hospital after having his first kid. Now, he was one of the sort of probably one or two people who I had confided in. And obviously, I was delighted for, for him to have their kid and everything was fine with them. But I just couldn't believe as I was getting, I was leaving in my sample to get it tested. He was, he was celebrating the fact that he was bringing his child into the world. And obviously now, I was absolutely delighted for him and I wouldn't wish what I was going through on anyone but at the same time it just felt like like why is this happening to me and how come it's happening well it, apparently it seems to me it happens easy to everyone else but it's it's not always the case but I, I was happy for him but there's always that little bit where you, you just feel a little bit jealous which is I think it's a perfectly uh, natural uh, reaction so after those two months of living like a monk the, the thing was still exactly the same anger frustration probably I don't think I've ever suffered from depression, but I probably felt down or depressed. I felt, just felt like, why is this happening? And I'm the type of person where I need to find out why. I need to find out why this is happening. There has to be a reason. Like, this cannot just happen for no reason. There has to be something going on that is causing this. And I went back to the consultant that I've ha I was at a year before, and he didn't really offer me any solution to how to fix it. And he didn't really give me any hope of ever having a child. And he said it would probably be even difficult if I did go down the IVF route. So I left his office even worse than ever. There was nothing we could really do. It looked like we were going to have to go down the IVF route. And that was our only option. If we really did want to bring a child into the world, we were told, and he had, the so-called expert told us, look, you're never going to have a kid naturally. This is your only hope. And uh, to be honest, this was this was one of the worst periods of my life. I just felt so drained with everything. And it was sort of, I felt like it was spilling over into my work. I felt like I had to sort of try extra hard to pretend that I was enjoying DJing and being on stage. and But I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't enjoying it at all. I just felt burnt out. I'd had enough. Just I just had, was fed up with so much grimness in my personal life and I just wanted things to change. And it, that sense of anxiety and that burning feeling inside me that something wasn't right just kept building and building and building. And I just, I found it very, very, very difficult to uh, to deal with. 
And it, it just felt like my whole life had become about failure, failure to have children and unable to provide one of the most primal things as a human being. So it was just really, 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 a really, really difficult time. And Christmas came and went. And in uh, January 2020, we started our first cycle of IVF. Now, for, for people listening in, friends especially who... Um, I'm me. I'm sort of talking about this on behalf of my wife as well. This is sort of the first time I've spoken about it. Not many people know that we've we went through the IVF route. So, for any of my close friends or anyone listening in who who might feel why we didn't tell you, it was a it was a very private thing for us at the time, and that's sort of the way it is with IVF. You you don't really um want to tell anyone that you're doing it because you don't want to jinx it in case it works, but at the same time, you don't want to tell anyone because you don't want to have to face people when it doesn't work either. So for friends, anyone listening in who wasn't aware that we were doing it, that's the reason why we didn't say anything at the time, but hopefully you'll understand uh, the reasoning behind it. So for anyone that doesn't know much about IVF, I'm just going to give a brief summary of what it entails. So the female has to take a load of drugs and injections to stimulate the ovaries in order to grow the follicles which contain the eggs. So the female then has to go into the clinic every second day to have an internal scan to see how these follicles are growing. And once they are ready, the female will take a trigger injection and a day or so later she will go in for a egg retrieval procedure. So the male has to provide a semen sample on the same day as the egg retrieval. And then the next part is completely out of your hands. It's all down to the lab, it's down to science and it's down to a whole lot of luck. So then the egg from the female and the semen from the male are combined to create an embryo. And if this process is successful, an embryo will then be transfer, transferred back into the female, called an embryo transfer. And then you have to wait two weeks to do a pregnancy test. So the, for, speaking from my side, it was pretty straightforward, but it's very, very invasive for the, for the female as for, for what it was for Adele. So it's not only physically challenging, it's also very mentally challenging as well. And it was very very difficult for her to go through all of that and it was also difficult for myself to see what she had to go through to try and get to bring a child into the world it was very very difficult and it was it was horrible for me to see her doing all of these injections and being pumped full of all this stuff and and again I just felt so much guilt about the whole situation it like it was a truly awful time but I just tried to provide as much support as I could so that's how an IVF cycle should go but things don't always go to plan, unfortunately. When we were about to start our first cycle, the clinic tested Edel's AMH level. So AMH is a woman's egg count and Edel's was low for her age. So women with low AMH, they're not great candidates for IVF as you will not generate as many eggs as, say, a female with normal AMH. So we were dealt another massive blow. And I'll never forget the day we went to pick up the drugs for the IVF cycle from the pharmacy two huge massive bags of drugs and it was it was mental so we started the cycle but we had to it had to be cancelled midway through as Edel's body wasn't responding to the drugs in the way that the clinic wanted so they wanted to put her on a different protocol to see if she would respond to it better and this was a another huge blow for us I remember uh, Edel rang me crying as she was on her way back to work from the clinic and she then had to go into work and act completely normal as if nothing was happening it was it was horrible so she had to pretend that nothing had happened even though she felt like she was sort of dying inside 
And that's one of the themes of IVF. It's the secrecy. It's the not telling anyone about any of it. It's sort of you keep it all to yourself and you don't really um, share with anyone. So a few weeks later, we started the second protocol, but uh, halfway through the cycle and halfway through putting a load of drugs and a load of needles into our body, it was a bit cancelled again because of fucking COVID. And this was a really tough period because the whole country got locked down and the fertility clinics had no idea when they were going to be back open and it left a lot of people in limbo with their treatments and it was awful. So finally June came along and we started a new cycle and uh, this time we got to the egg retrieval stage and we waited for updates from the lab. We had a little bit of hope as we managed to make a small bit of progress but our dreams were quickly dashed on the second day to tell us when the sorry when the phone call came through to tell us that the eggs didn't progress after the fertilization and it was a it was a really horrible horrible moment. I remember sitting at the kitchen table when Edel got the call, and I remember the tone of her voice changing and the look on her face, and I just immediately burst into tears. And I remember that was a there was a fella here out painting the outside of our house, and five minutes after the call. I had to pretend that everything was fine and, and Andy Dell had to pretend that everything was fine. And it was literally two or five minutes after we had just received another hammer blow on the road to, to having a child of our own. So we were both very, very upset and it was very hard to take. And all that time, all that energy, all that effort, all those drugs, all those scans, it just felt like a, a complete waste of time and it felt like it was all for nothing. And I just remember... One time in particular, it was it was sort of it was just before we were about to do the sort of egg retrieval and the transfer and stuff. So it was getting close to like the end of the drug cycle that Edel was on. And I remember it being in there because I had to provide another sample, etc. And they asked me had I been away to any countries in the in the last six months. Now obviously I had with my job and traveling and doing shows and that. And I said, yeah, I've been away to Argentina. I was there last month. And they said, oh, you might need to get tested for the the Zika virus. And I was there, well, the the list of countries here on your table of the Zika virus, Argentina isn't actually on it. And she said, oh, no, I think we're going to have to get it checked anyway. And I said, well, well, hang on there, right? So I went onto my phone, went onto the thing all about the Zika virus, and Argentina isn't on the list. And again, she was just insisting, no, we need to do this test. It can cause complications with the with the IVF. We might need to cancel the the cycle. And I was like, fucking arsehole. So I was losing me a lot. I really did lose my head because it just felt like they were there was they were just ripping me off. So I had to pay like four hundred euro to get that test done. Left the place fuming. And I remember I was going over to get me haircut, and the first thing the barber says to me was, he was after getting someone pregnant. He didn't know what to do and did I have any advice for him? <laughs> and I just could not believe that I'd just come from a fertility clinic, gone through that, been forced to pay €400 Euro for a test, which I knew I didn't, didn't have. And I was being asked <laughs> for advice about what to do because he had got someone pregnant that he didn't want to in the first place. And I just just felt like then right, the universe is taking the absolute uh, piss, piss out of me. And um, it was around this time as well, someone who had only previously just sort of got to know, didn't really know them that well. He then confided in me that he was going to become a father. It was just like, this is, this is fucking crazy. 
we're going through the IVF. Two people have said this to me. It's just like, here we were doing everything we possibly could to bring a child into the world. And that was just one of the hardest parts of the whole process, trying to accept that and seeing shit like that. And it's, it's very, very difficult to accept. And even when your friends tell you that you're having kids, like you're, of course you're happy for them, but there's still, there's, there's still that little part of you where you're just a little bit jealous and envious of their situation. And obviously, I never, ever would have wanted any of my friends to go through what we go through. But there's, there's just always that little ego side of you where it's just like you're, you're jealous and you're envious of the situation. And then just moving on again, throughout 2020, the, this, obviously we were stuck at home, lockdowns, etc. Coming into July 2020, I needed to find out more into the varicocele that I had and my situation and just it was it was just it wasn't right like one side of my testicles was like literally twice the size of the other side and obviously it's having an impact on my ability to have kids like it's it's it, it wasn't it wasn't right so i needed to find i needed to find someone who could tell me and help me get a solution to this rather than just like saying it happens because i couldn't accept that and something inside me was telling me that there was, there was another reason for it. So I went to another guy, apparently one of the leading fellas in Ireland for well, one of the most respected guys in the country. And I just asked, how is it possible for me to be in a worse situation than ever? Like after go, undergoing this, this procedure to improve my fertility and what could have caused it? And he, he couldn't really give me an answer. He just said it, it can happen or you could have got an infection or and again, it just, it didn't see, sit right with me. There had to be a reason and I had to find out why. And we didn't seem to be making any progress doing this in Ireland. And we sort of just felt like, like we're not having any luck here in Ireland. It was like, we're, it's time for us to look further afield and to get help elsewhere. Because it just felt like we were pouring money down the drain and we were getting absolutely nowhere. So, so Adele had um, done some research and she came across a, a, a doctor called Jonathan Ramsey and he was located in London. And she had read that he was the number one doctor in the UK for male fertility. So I contacted his office and I made an appointment for a phone consultation. So a couple of weeks later, we had the phone conversation and we told him our entire story from start to finish and explained in detail my issue about the varicocele. It just felt a little bit different this time because he did something then that a doctor had never done before. He asked me what my gut feeling was. And I said to him out straight, look, I, th I think there's something going on inside me that's causing this issue and until we find out what it is I'll never have a kid and he, re he replied saying yeah I think exactly the same thing and it was it felt like it was the first time that someone had listened to what I actually had to say so it was then agreed I was travel over to his practice in the UK in July 2020 for more examinations and scans and then we can make a plan about what to do I booked my flight for London and this is when things got a uh, very, very interesting. So I flew over to London at the end of July. Now this is the height of the pandemic. The plane was empty. The trains were empty. The airports were empty. London was like almost a ghost town. And I went to his practice that was located in uh, Harley Street. So I talked to him. He examined me. He confirmed that I had a large varicocele on the left-hand side. So I then had to go and have a, an ultrasound on my testicles again. So I went down and the, the fella performing it, performed the ultrasound, so he found no lumps, there was nothing of concern. And then, then the guy doing the scan asked me if I've ever had my kidneys checked, and I said no. So 
Checked the right hand side, right was fine. Checked my le- left hand side and he immediately asked me if I have health insurance. And I said, yeah, I do, but in Ireland. And he goes, right, well, I think I found a problem. I was sort of just lying there, not really knowing what to do or what to say. And he couldn't really say anything. So he said he'd send results up to the doctor and the doctor would talk me through them. I said, oh, all right, okay. So I went out for a walk around London for an hour or two and waited for my uh, follow-up with the doctor. And this was a a life-changing moment, to say, to, to say the least. So I sat down, table across from him, and he, he told me they had found the cause of the varicocele. And it was a five-inch tumour in the ve- in the vein near to my left kidney. And uh, I just I went into complete shock. Couldn't believe what I was hearing. And the first thing that came to my mind was my wife, Idel, and my mother. And how was I going to tell them this news? And the doctor, the doctor just uh, continued to talk. He told me that in all of his years working as a doctor, he'd seen this issue twice and that he was, he was very, very old and that he's, he's been doing this a long time. And he said that the varicocele was sort of a warning sign to tell me that something was wrong. And uh, I was sort of still, still just sitting there in shock and I asked him if I should be worried. And he said, no, you should be relieved. He told me that he thought it was a, a slow-growing tumour that was isolated in that area. He, he told me that the two patients that had had this issue before had both got good results from it. But again, I was still finding it very, very hard to process what I was hearing. But he told me that I was going to be okay. So he, he did his best to uh, reassure me. And he, he immediately put a plan into place. He called the Blackrock Clinic in Dublin. And he spoke to the secretary of urologist that he highly, rec- highly recommended. And she took all of my details and she told him that she would contact me to make an appointment to see him straight away. Now, it was around this time as well where we had decided that we were going to go to Spain to try IVF over there because we, we had heard really good reviews about a particular place in Alicante. So we were due to go there the following week. We were about to go to Spain to for another consultation and to, again, start the process of trying for a kid. And I've literally just been told that have a tumour, five inch tumour in me. So <laughs> that, that trip to Spain would have to be postponed or cancelled. And again, guilt, guilt just kicked in. This was being cancelled and it's all because of me and it's all, all my fault. And again, I was as I was leaving the doctor's office, he sort of just said, look, you're going to be okay. Just keep your head together. You're, you're in good hands now. The plan is in place and you'll be, uh, you'll be looked after. So I left to head back out the airport. So I walked from Harley Street to the to the train station to go back to Heathrow and I was just walking around London not having a clue what was going on. I felt like I was in like a daydream. Nothing seemed real. Couldn't feel anything. Couldn't. I just, I was numb. And looking back on it now, I realised that I had, I had gone into shock. But at the same time, I'd come, I'd come to London to get an answer to what, what, what I knew was something I always knew there was reason and I'd come to get an answer and I'd got it. Now, it may not have been the one that I wanted or the one I expected, but I had got an answer. The next day, the reality of uh, the situation really hit me. The shock was gone. Fear and worry had taken over and I just couldn't wrap my head around what I'd been told. And I was I was terrified. I couldn't look at Edel. I couldn't look at my cat Jackson without crying. I just felt like I'd let everyone down. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but that's that's how I felt at the time. I just felt like guilt. 
guilt for being diagnosed with a tumour. So I received my appointment for the Blackrock Clinic and I went to speak to the consultant and he, he couldn't really give me a definitive answer as to what was going on inside me, like how serious it was or what the next step was until I had more scans. I didn't even know whether it had spread anywhere else, what it was. So I had to go for a CT, CT scan to see what was going on inside me. And I was just, I was so scared. Um, my mind was just taking me to very, very dark places and the unknown. It's not really a nice place for me to be. I have a fucking wild imagination. So it was taking me to some really, really dark, worrying places. He did give me one piece of really good advice. He told me not to let this define me and he told me to put it in a drawer and to get on with your life and live it exactly the same way as you did before until you're doing a scan. And I tried to take this advice on board. But the next next week, next two weeks, uh, waiting for that scan to go and do it was one of the worst, one of the worst periods of my life. I was, I was terrified, absolutely terrified, crying all the time. And uh, my mother came down to stay, stay with me to offer some support and etc. And Edel and my mother, they were absolutely amazing throughout all of this. I, I don't, I don't know how they did it, but they managed to hold it together in front of me. And I really, I don't know how they did it. That really did help me, the fact that they weren't breaking down because I was in absolute pieces. And there was there were times where I just had to go upstairs just to let everything out of me. Um, I just fell to the ground and cried uncontrollably and just kept saying, I'm so scared, I'm so scared. And I just I didn't want to die. I didn't want to didn't want my life to end. I didn't especially like this. And then I'd be okay for like five minutes and then everything would just come back and hit me even harder. And like I was, I was 37 years of age. I thought it was fit, fit and healthy. And, and now this happened. And my dad had died four years ago from pancreatic cancer. And he died literally weeks after getting his diagnosis. So like, was this happening to me? Was, was my life coming to an end? Is this it? So I had to go for a, a CT scan. So anyway, I got into the car to go to for a CT scan. And, and about two minutes after I left my house, the clutch... <laughs> The clutch in my car snapped and I couldn't drive the car. The car wouldn't move. <laughs> oh, I can't stop laughing at this now. The car wouldn't move and I was stuck at a roundabout with cars behind me and the cars were beeping at me, calling me a fucking Egypt. I rang Edel straight away and told her what was happening and I was just all over the place. I think I was just, I think I just hung up because I didn't really know what to do. And I just remember sending her a text asking, like, why is this happening to me? Like, what did I do to deserve this? Why is this happening? So I had to try and push the car back out of the way on my own, push the car and steer it. And I couldn't really do it. But one of my neighbors drove past and he helped me move it out of the way. And I rang my mom and she came and I drove her car to the scan. So I've never, I've never had a CT scan. I've never really been in hospital. I've never had anything like that. So just when you're lying in that machine, your mind does mad shit to you. You're imagining like, all right, what are they seeing on that screen? And I'm thinking the most catastrophic things you can ever imagine. I was like imagining them seeing my insides covered in tumours and like that was the end of me. And I was expecting them to just say, oh, that's, oh, you've no hope or whatever. But that's not how it works. They do the scan and they send the results back and stuff. So we did the scan and I left. So I had to call the insurance company as soon as I got out after doing the scan for a garage to come to collect my car to take it to a garage to get it fixed. So they did that 
took the car from the garage, brought, took it from the side of the road, brought it to the garage, and then a couple of hours later, I got a call from the garage and they told me it was going to cost me €1,500 Euro to fix the car. So anyway, enough of the laughing. Uh, I was shitting myself for the next week, thinking about what the results would be. It's just mind running away with self, etc. The unknown is a, it's not a nice place to be. So I returned to the Blackrock Clinic for the results and Adele came with me, but she wasn't allowed in because of COVID, all that stuff. So she went for a walk outside and I walked in and he he reassured me straight away. He said, look, it's good news. It hasn't spread anywhere else and it doesn't really look like an aggressive, uh, aggressive tumour from the scans. But at the same time, couldn't really tell until they take it out, etc. But I just felt an immediate sense of relief. Uh, I do have an issue with the unknown, but this I can I can deal with this now that I know what it is, and now that I know what's happening, I can deal with it. I can't be, really be afraid of what I know. So he said he had arranged the best robotic surgeon in the country to take care of the surgery, and I was to have a consultation with him at St Vincent's Hospital. So fair enough. But he also said that he thought that the varicocele, the issue down below would uh, wouldn't go away after procedure so that worried me slightly because I wanted to try and get the fertility issue sorted but at the same time I think living was more of a concern with me at that at that moment in time so I walked out there feeling a lot lighter plan was in place I could deal with this now and I sort of put it in a drawer I forgot about it lived my life just went to the gym went out for dinners did everything as normal as as normal as I could so then I went to meet the surgeon who would uh, carry out the, the the surgery. He explained the plan and it was like keyhole surgery to remove it. But he did warn me that it's like it's a quite serious operation that it would take like six weeks to recover. And uh, I was given the day for the surgery and it was the September the 10th, 2020. He said it'd probably more than likely be in there for like three days. So once again, put it in a drawer, put it to one side and I got on with my life for the next few weeks. So in that time, um, Idel had to go to Spain for the cons- consultation on her own. I couldn't go um, because I was going to be tested for COVID, etc. And if I got tested for COVID and if it got positive, I wouldn't have been able to do the operation. So she went over and she had to go over and do more tests and scans. And Idel rang me in tears from the airport and she told me that the doctor told her that with her low AMH levels, the chances of IVF working would be quite low. And he also said the low levels of AMH are what you would see in an older female. And Edel was only in her early 30s at this stage. And he said that if the cycle was not successful with her own eggs, to maybe consider going down the egg donor route, which wasn't something that we wanted to hear. Donor eggs were never on our radar. And this was another huge blow for us. It just felt like the whole world was falling apart. She was sitting in the airport on her own in a foreign country crying after being told that news and it's just I should have been there supporting her. And she had to deal with that. And then I'd just been told that I have a five inch tumour about me inside me and I was just about to go into hospital for major surgery and, and now my wife was given that news in addition to everything else what was going on. Now I can understand how difficult it was for her trying to deal with what was going on with me? Now she was hit with that sledgehammer for herself. It was, it was, it was very, very, very difficult. So anyway, September tenth went into hospital, and it was early on a Thursday morning, and I put it all to one side until then. 
And once I got into the hospital, the reality of sort of everything still hadn't really hit me. So I filled out the forms, I spoke to the nurse about what the next few days and weeks would bring and I walked downstairs towards the operating theatre. I remember seeing the surgeon and I just remember he looked like he was like geeing himself up for the operation. It looked like he was mentally preparing himself for it, like a footballer in a tunnel before a football game or something. So I walked into the theatre full of people. I was given the anaesthetic and I was I was gone. I was under. So I came back around a few hours later in the recovery ward. I had no idea how long it was for. I just remember looking across and seeing a, a group of nurses around an elderly woman in a bed. And I just heard, I just saw that they were giving her ketamine for some reason. I just remember about 10 minutes later, she was hallucinating and freaking out. And it was just one of the, the fucking strangest, strangest things I've ever seen. I didn't I had no idea what was going on because I was being pumped full of morphine and all of their medications and had no idea what was going on, the anesthetic, etc. And I'm no, not sure how long I was in there for, but I asked for my phone so that I could contact Adele. And uh, she said that the surgeon had contacted her after he completed the operation. He said it had gone well, everything was fine. He said it took about four, four hours to do it. But he said that the tumor was like completely wrapped around my kidney so that they had to remove the entire organ. And uh, I couldn't have keyhole surgery due to the size of the tumor. They had to like literally cut me open to take it out. And I still have the scar like underneath my belly button there. It's like a say three, two or three inch scar right under there that I'll have there for the rest of my life. So I tried to wrap my head around that. Um couldn't really I didn't really want to speak to anyone other than Adele I just asked her to let people know that how it went and I was alright and then I was moved into the normal ward for the recovery but that night I was just in excruciating pain I had to call the nurse in on a number of occasions my stomach was just full of gas from the surgery your stomach gets pumped full of gas so that it can expand so that they can perform the operation and then there had been a huge amount of messing around my insides in addition to that gas and I couldn't move in the bed without being in like an awful pain and I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep because I was so off my head and morphine either. It was absolutely fucking disgusting. So then the next day as the anaesthetics and all that sort of stuff wore off, I was in even more pain. Hadn't slept, no rest. I was just in awful pain off my head on morphine again so the physio came around and she showed me a couple of things to do to help me move again and it just every time I moved it felt like there was someone inside me pulling on me insides like even walking to the toilet was one of the most challenging things I've ever had to do the pain was just excruciating like it was just incredible so the doctors came around and he told me how the operation went and that they, they had to remove the kidneys and Sorry, not the kidneys. If I wouldn't be here, if they take the two of them out. But I had to remove my left kidney. So emotions were all over the place. I couldn't stop crying. But I now know that this is a perfectly normal reaction to surgery and that your body experiences a trauma. So my emotions were all over the place. I'd be fine one minute, but I was just, just crying five minutes later. and The cycle was just uh, repeating itself. But I had private health insurance. Um, so I asked to be moved to like a semi-private part of the hospital so they brought me there in a wheelchair still off my head on morphine and all the other medications they had given me in addition to the pain I was feeling from the gas the, the morphine and all that stuff was making me constipated so it was making it even worse so my stomach was like sticking out it actually looked like I was pregnant so I had another sleepless night and I asked for something to help with the pain but I, I knew that I was probably just making myself worse 
in the long run. So I still hadn't slept since the operation. I was emotionally and physically fucked and still off my head on morphine. And it was disgusting. So the next day was much the same. I was in horrendous pain and crying and trying to comprehend what what happened. And I was in a ward with a guy who was probably about 10 years older than me. And he was riddled with tumours and he, he didn't have long left. And he was on that many meds that the eyes were rolling back in the back of his head. And I just I just remember asking myself the question, like, how the fuck am I in here? Like a couple of days ago, I was at the gym lifting weights, going for walks, fit and healthy. And now I can barely go for a piss. So they gave me laxatives to help clear my stomach out to get rid of the gas and the pain. But it didn't work. Nothing was working. And the pain was horrendous. And like... I didn't think I'd ever be able to get to go home, but I was just in too much pain to leave. I, I d- thought I was going to be in there for God knows how long. So then I finally got some rest, like 20 minutes here and there. And then the next morning, which was the Sunday, I was told I was going home. I was able to move a little bit better. I, I forced myself to get up because I needed to start moving again. I walked up and down the corridor of the ward to get some movement back into my body. And I was just like... I fucking hate being in a hospital. I hope I never ever come back in here ever again. Hope the next time that I come into a hospital and I'm in a ward is when Edel is pregnant and when our child comes into the world comes into the world because I never ever want to come back into this place ever again. So I was walking up and down the, the ward and it was just it was a fucking eerie place. It was just strange. I just saw an elderly man with no legs lying in bed, obviously Elva from all the medication he was on. Then I walked, looked in another door and I saw an elderly woman asleep with her face in a bowl of cereal. Again, Elva from all the medication she was on. I was just like, how the fuck am I in here? So I was ready to go home at that stage. I was able to walk. They were told me I was going to go home. So Edel came in to collect me. So I was able to walk from the ward out of the hospital down to the pickup point. Now, if you'd have told me that, I would have been able to do that the day before. I would have laughed at you. But my body was learning and it was adapting already. And I'd gone in there in good physical condition and I was told that it would help with the recovery. But my emotions were still all over the place, crying and just trying to comprehend what had happened. And I got home on the Sunday afternoon and the laxative finally worked uh, and I got some relief. But we still looked pregnant, but the gas was still sticking out. But um, I made a decision there and then that I wasn't taking any more medication. I wasn't taking any more painkillers. I was taking nothing else. I was just going to face this head on because these painkillers and all that stuff, it was just making me worse. And I was in so much pain, but, I, but I, I just could not put any more of that stuff into my body. I just couldn't stop crying. I couldn't accept the lack of strength I had, how difficult it was for me to even stand up. Like walking up and down the stairs, like even it took every bit of strength that I had to get up off the couch. And my emotions were all over the place, crying at random times. But Adele was great again. She held it together. And she was strong for me. And that's exactly what I needed at that moment in time. So moving forward, uh, the first week was the hardest. I, I took it very, very easy. Like I was still getting up and I was moving around as much as possible. So like the first couple of days I was doing maybe like 2,000 steps and then the next day 3,000 steps and maybe 4,000 the next day. Next day. I just think try to gradually increase a little bit by bit. And I I lost a lot of weight from the operation, so I was down to like seventy nine kilos. Um, I'm I'm over eighty nine kilos now, so you can imagine someone who's tall and has a long head like I do. I looked like death. Anyway, 
the mental and emotional side of the recovery, that was the hardest part. It was all over the place. The physical pain was still really bad. It's like the gas from the operation remains in your body for a good while. And it just feels like someone is, in, pull, is inside you, pulling on your insides. So I started moving more, getting moving, more movement into my body. Uh, like I, I'm, I'm not a person who can sit around. Like That's not me. I just needed to start moving again. So I was back doing 10,000 steps a day about 10 days after the surgery. So I didn't take any pain meds when I got home in the hospital, nothing. But about two weeks after the surgery, I had a day where I did about 20,000 steps. <laughs> and my body just told me, look here, man, you've done way too much. And that was the only day where I took a couple of ibuprofens to, um, just to help, just to get me through those, that, that pain. But I was healing. And the thing that gave me some hope was that the varicocele that I had prior to the operation had gone and my balls felt and looked normal again. And that just gave me a little bit of hope that things may have changed. So I had a follow-up with my surgeon, told me the operation had went well. He told me that I'd have to get scanned every year, probably for the rest of my life, and I'll do another one the following year in May. And but he was he was happy with how it went. He just wished us luck in our uh, with our fertility situation, and, and he hoped it worked. But he was shocked that the varicocele was gone because he he didn't expect it for it to go. But I just started to gain a little bit of hope that things things got uh, could improve. Now, obviously, the rest of the world was gone to shit at this stage. We were all level five lockdowns and peak fucking pandemic, all that rubbish that we went through we won't go into it today that's done talking about that stuff but moving on coming back to the IVF as I said we um, had decided at that stage we were going to go and do it in Spain and we were starting it in October so it was about we started in October it was mid to late October we were going over there so less than five weeks after my surgery, we were back on our, we were on our way to Spain to start doing the IVF again. So before that, Idel had started doing her injections, taking all her medications and all that type of stuff. So we went to Spain and everything in Spain felt like a step above the IVF clinics in Ireland. The staff were nicer, the doctors were better, didn't feel like we were, were a number. And going to Spain, the weather was good. It felt like we were on holidays. There wasn't as much pressure. Instead of just driving into the city or to the clinics where we were going, it, it, it just felt a little bit different, you know. It took the, it just made it a little bit more, in, not enjoyable, but it was just a little bit more relaxed. And it just felt like they cared more. And we were hopeful of getting a, a better result. So I went in to, 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 do, to, to give a sample and to check and to see what my situation was because it was the first time that I had had one since the operation and my numbers had improved dramatically and my, I was told my results were really good and I was told that I was no longer infertile and now this gave me hope that this th things, would, things would work out and while we were over there we, were, we got the news from Ireland that I was going into a level five lockdown. And also, I, was, I wasn't able to go do my exercising, which is going to the gym and exercising, which is essential for my physical and mental health. It's something that I've done for years and years and years. I wasn't able to do any training or lifting for six weeks after my surgery. And on the day that that, that six-week recovery ended, they shut the fucking gyms. Absolutely fuming. So then that morning as well, I think it was that morning or it could have been one or the other morning. It actually was that morning because it was the day, six weeks to the day. 
I got up out of bed and I looked out the window of the hotel. And the next thing I knew, I was on the ground shaking and I, like I had collapsed or I'd fainted and I had no idea what happened. Like it was just very, very strange. I think I might have just stood up too quickly and the blood rushed to my head. And obviously I was still maybe recovering. And I just remember being, Adele being over me in tears. But it came around pretty quickly. I was there. I'm, I'm grand. I'm fine. It's all right. You're all right. We're here to sort of look after you. I'm here to look after you. I'm grand. Don't worry about it. But like I was still, I was a little bit shaken about it. But I was, for a couple of days, I was a little bit shaken. Like, what fucking hell happened there? But it was fine. Forgot about it. I was there to make sure she was okay. So we readied, readied ourselves for the egg retrieval and the, the transfer. And we had a far better result in Spain compared to Ireland. Like, like it was night and day between what what had happened. Like we got two grade eight embryos and one grade B, I think it was. So we couldn't really have had a better result than what we what we did. So they transferred the two grade eight grade A embryos and we were we were very, very, very hopeful. And uh, we had to wait a couple of weeks then to do the pregnancy test to see if it had worked. And we were very hopeful, had come home, tried to remain in um, good spirits. And two weeks later, Dell took the test and it was uh, it was negative and we were fucking heartbroken. So it was another failed cycle of IVF. I was out of work, recovering from major surgery. And we were in a level five lockdown in Ireland and it was a fucking grim time to be alive. I swear to God, it was awful. But... um. A few weeks before that, we'd made the decision of getting uh, a golden retriever. And um, we collected them on the 7th of November. And we did this so we would have something else to focus on in the event of the IVF not working. Just to focus on. And ju- just just a heads up for anyone listening in. If you see a couple in their late 20s or early 30s or whatever, if, if, if you see them getting a puppy or a pet, or something like that. It probably means that they're having difficulties starting a family. So I'd just be very, very mindful of like the, the questions that you ask, or just have have a little bit of, be mindful of their situation because it's sort of a telltale sign that they're having issues. Well, it isn't my experience, and it, it's it it was definitely for for our experience. And I just remember around this time, so someone said to me, should you not be having kids? And this was literally weeks after we had gone through that failed cycle. So for someone to say something like that to her, was it was it was completely out of line. Now, I know this person didn't know what we were going through and it's more ignorance rather than being malicious. But this is what I mean about being careful about what you say to people. Idella had just been through a long IVF cycle and it failed. And she's sitting there without a child of her own. And that's what she wants more than anything you can ever imagine. And a comment like that is said to her, it's a massive slap in the face. So anyway, we got Harvey and Harvey was a little bollocks of a puppy. I swear to God, he was wild. Never slept, he terrorised the cat. He was hard work. And it, it, it felt like we, we, were, we had a child. That's, that's the work that I had. Like I was, for the first few weeks, he was awake at seven o'clock in the morning and he wouldn't sleep until 11 o'clock at night. And it was um, it was pretty difficult. Now I have to say, but it was good. Laugh about it now, but it was uh, it was uh, it was a tough time. I have to say. But anyway, yeah, we continued on, feeling grim, feeling down about things. But look, we 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 sort of took a little bit of hope from 
how we had um how the last time it gone was like look it's maybe it is improving maybe it's it maybe things are getting better so we were starting another uh, round of IVF which was due to start in February but we had to go back over in January as well for some more tests so I did more tests and my situation had improved even more it was all good everything was everything seemed to be getting better and we went back to Spain for another round of IVF at the end of February 2021 now at, at this time there were police in the airport asking people where they were going and you were finding, they were finding people for leaving the country without a valid reason. So we had to show letters from the clinic. We had to show them the bags of medication that Edel had, a proof of where we were going. And that really, really annoyed me. They were like, that's private shit. That's none of your business, like where we're going. It's, it's insane. And also Spain had a really strict lockdown going on at this stage. Like they had a curfew of eight o'clock. So we weren't even allowed to leave where we were staying after that time. And you had to wear a mask literally everywhere you were going. You had to wear it on the beach. You had to wear it everywhere. It was madness. I remember being on the beach one day and I was taking a drink out of my coffee and there was a copper on the beach and he started giving out to me because I had taken my mask down to drink a coffee. That's how mental it was. It was it was nuts. So anyway, we went through the whole process again, did another transfer. The situation had sort of improved again. And we had hope, but to be honest, I don't think we were as, as hopeful as, as the last time. I think we probably had both lost a little bit of faith that it was going to work. And um, we did we did the transfer and uh, we made our way home. So we're on the plane home. And again, only a few people knew why we were doing it, why we were away. So we were on the plane flying home and you're always like worried like what? What if so? What if we see someone over here, or what if we see someone over here, and we have to explain why we're over here? Like you're not supposed to be away. Travel is illegal for people at this time, etc. All that stuff. So we're on the plane home anyway, and I was sitting there, and I could hear like familiar music coming through the headphones of someone like near to me, and I'm sort of looking around because the music sounded really familiar. And then about ten minutes later, I get a tip on my shoulder, and there's a fella in the seat, the middle seat behind me. Tips me on the shoulder and his hand comes through, shows me his phone and he's playing one of my sets. So that's, that was the music that I could hear and he was a fella from Belfast. And I just remember thinking like, shit, what if he like says to some of the people from Belfast that we know that like he saw us on the plane coming home and what if they start asking why we were away and it's just, it's just a big IVF secret. Like you, you just, you don't want to tell anyone why you're doing it. So about two weeks passed, but this time we didn't even get to do a test because Edel got her period. This was just the same story again. Didn't work. Ireland's a kip. Lockdowns. It, it was when I started like doing this podcast for the first time. So fucking angry, pissed off with life. What's the point? But we just decided that it was time to take a break from IVF. We need to, It's it, maybe it's not going to work. Maybe we just need to go down the natural route. So we started um, doing couples acupuncture with this amazing woman called Ina. We started taking Chinese herbs and mushrooms and we were going to her every single week, two times a week sometimes. Uh, we were meditating, we were exercising, we were doing a lot of good natural stuff. And yeah, we just, we, we, this is the way we wanted to do it. We, we, um, we just wanted to do, go down the natural route. So after about a month of doing the acupuncture, Del had a really bad period, bleed. 
And only looking back on it now, she thinks she might have experienced something called a chemical pregnancy, which is a, an extremely early miscarriage. Now, we really didn't know it at the time and we can't really be 100% sure, but that's what she thinks it could, could have been. Idella had gone to see one of the top gynecologists in Dublin earlier in the year and she, she suggested to her that she could have endometriosis and the only way to find out for sure would be to have something called a laparoscopy. So they believe that endometriosis can have an effect on your fertility, but Idel was reluctant to have this operation as she read it can make your AMH levels worse and she didn't really want to take that risk. So in May of 2021, I had to go back for my first CT scan after the surgery and that, that feeling of anxiety, uh, the worry of it returning. Now it's, 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 to be honest with you, it's always there inside me, but for most of the year, it will remain dormant. It won't really come to the surface, but it's always there. But especially for this first one, um, especially for going back for the first time, see if it's coming back or if it's anywhere else. And like, I still feel like that, like that now. And as he said, it'll be like that for the rest of my life. It'll just differ in its strength of like, how, how like, is it going to come back? And then I'll forget about it for two or three months and then it'll just come back on me. But I just have to accept that it's, it's always going to be there and it's, it's perfectly fine. But I also had to get bloods done and the blood results came back and at the top of the bloods it said like, oh, you have chronic kidney disease. And I was like, what the, what the fuck? I was like, was terrified. So I contacted the consultant straight away, but he, he just said, look, your readings are always going to be a little bit different because you've only one kidney. And he goes, I don't know why they have these things on the, 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 the these things written on the results. You've nothing to worry about. Your results are fine. I'm just like, right, thank fuck for that. So anyway, I went and got the cigarette and I waited for the results. And on the day before I was due to get my results, the health service in Ireland got hacked. Then I had to wait. I didn't even know what was going on to get my results. It was delayed. So I waited for the phone call to get through, but the surgeon had no access to his file, so he couldn't make the call. So I had to wait. The anxiety that I was experienced increased and increased and increased. And your mind does mad shit to you when you don't know. And my one does anyway because of a wild imagination, as I said earlier. But anyway, eventually I got the call. Funnily enough, just had just had just as we had entered another fertility clinic for more advice about what to do. But he told me I was fine, everything looked good, and anyway, relief, a bit of relief, but it was one less worry for for a while anyway. And back in, I went into the fertility clinic to get back onto that other worry that we constantly had to worry about. So we spoke to this very highly rated fertility doctor, and she also thought it would be a good idea for Adele to have a laparoscopy as you can get in there and see if there's anything else going on. So Idel decided to go ahead with it. And while they were doing that, they would also perform a hystero hysteroscopy, I think I got that right, a procedure to examine the inside of the womb. So she had that procedure in June and they found a tiny bit of endo. It was stage one and it was removed and uh, everything else looked fine. So we had another couple of months of trying. It wasn't working. Each month you have that couple of weeks of hope, thinking that this could be the one that works, but it doesn't. And you're just sort of back to square one. And we were sort of talking to the 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 lady who does our acupuncture, and she was just telling us, look, you have to sort of be happy for people who are having. You need to sort of believe that it's going to happen, and it's it's about your mindset and intentions and setting it out there and believing that it's going to happen. So we were doing like a, a fertility meditation 
at the time where we were trying to conceive as well. We did that every night together before we went to sleep. And then, September the 1st, 2021, Edel took another pregnancy test. Now, I was working in my studio at the time and all I could hear was screaming and I didn't know what was going on. But she came in running, saying that was positive, like crying, tears of joy, and we just couldn't believe it. And I just fell to the ground in disbelief. I just I felt I cannot believe it. It's finally, finally some good news. And the only people we initially told were our mothers and nobody else. And it just felt like things had finally changed. I was back working and I was earning money, no longer on social welfare. And something else that I completely forgot. We were actually supposed to return to Spain for another round of IVF in September. And the day before this, we had to go and collect the drugs for Adele to start the cycle. And it was the day before Adele found out she was pregnant. And then now, I, I, for people who have listened to the um, this podcast before, you probably have heard this story, but I'll, I'll run through it again. Uh, we went for an early scan on the uh, 24th of September. And we went in for an early scan. And they scanned Edel and he told her that they couldn't detect anything. So they said, look, we'll, um, you need to go and empty your bladder. We'll do an internal scan. And he did the internal scan and he said, oh, I'm so sorry, there's no heartbeat. And that was the worst moment of my life by a mile. Could not, could not believe it. And I just, I, I spoke about before, but I had a track release that day, the 24th of September, called Euphoric Recall. And I will always remember that day as being the worst moment of my life. So couldn't, for the name, for the track and for the day that's in it, they couldn't have been further apart. And the level of sadness that we felt and I felt physically sick and it was it was so, so difficult. And then the, the, that night where we had that, that scan and the two of us were crushed, my best mate and one of the two people that was aware of what we were going through texted me to say that they were at their 20-week scan today and they were having a girl and they were delighted. And I, I felt so sorry for him that he had sent that. Like he, he had no idea that Edel was pregnant in the first place. And he even said that he didn't even know whether to send me that text. And I just felt so sorry for him that he sent that message at that time. But it's just, it's weird how these things happen. These messages just seem to come at certain times. And I just said to him, man, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that that's happening. I'm just, I hope everything works out. But I just, we, we sort of just went back into our feeling really down about everything. So we went back to the hospital the following week, the following Friday, to have it confirmed. And they said Edel had had a silent miscarriage. And, and when when they said that, just like this odd feeling of acceptance sort of came across me, just as it had been confirmed. And it was like, it was sort of a finality. So we got back to the car park anyway, a multi-story car park. And I went to drive the car out of the car park and I had a flat tyre. And I didn't have any way of changing it. So we had to wait for assistance to come and that took over two hours. So on the day where we had the miscarriage confirmed, had a flat tyre, had to sit in the car park for two hours. And on the day where I was going for my first CT scan, the clutch went to my car on the way to the hospital. So it was that moment of time I decided I needed a new fucking car. But anyway, Edel had a, a, operation, or a procedure called a DNC the following week at the hospital. But again, we were sort of back to square one 
really down, really struggling. And I had an idea for this track that I wanted to work on. And I worked on it on the flight to and from the Czech Republic that um, I just gave the project name. It was Y, as in W-H-Y, as in why is this all happening to us? And just trying to make sense. And it was quite a, a sad sort of emotional sort of melody and song. But look, I'll come back to this later on in the podcast anyway. So I opened up on what happened on the podcast and a lot of people got in touch. A number of friends got in touch to say it happened to them as well. And just sort of realized that it doesn't get talked about enough. It's, it's, it's quite a, it's such a common thing, but there's so much shame and guilt and fear of judgment that people sort of don't talk about it. So I just feel like it's, uh, it's something that it needs to be spoken about more. And I hope, I know from me speaking about it, a lot of people contacted me through social media and Instagram and et cetera, contacted me saying they've been through the same thing. And, it was just good to connect with people to hear their stories and stuff. And so we went back down the the natural route again. Again, we sort of had to just take um take some hope from what had happened. It, it felt like step by step we were got sort of getting there, you know what I mean? So we were back doing the acupuncture, we were back doing our herbs, back doing the meditation, and we were waiting for our next opportunity to conceive. So our first month after the DNC was unsuccessful, which would have been November 2021. So again, we're a little bit sad, but look, we said we just have to, we have to, um, we just have to keep going. So then in December, I noticed a dark, a strange dark spot in the corner of um, Jackson, our cat, our main coon's eye. And for anyone who knows, who follows me or follows the page, like you know that Jackson is our little baby. We've had him, he's nearly eight years of age now, but he's he was like a child for us. And we brought him to the vet and he said it could be a tumour. And the vet said we may have to remove his eye. I was just like, for fuck's sake, another tumour. We need. He, he said we need to bring him for a scan to get it checked out. And then a couple of days later, my ma got in touch with me. And she told me she was after being diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And at, at this stage, I was just becoming numb to life at this point. It just felt like it was just bombarded with bad news. And I was just sort of used to it at this stage. And I just remember being on the phone to my mother and finding it hard to sort of keep it together. Like she, she had been the one that sort of got me through my diagnosis. Now I needed to be strong for her. But I was worried about her and I was worried about Jackson and I was down about our situation. and. All that and all that. So anyway, I had to bring uh, Jackson to an animal hospital for tests and he stayed there for the day. and we Left him there for the day and we were just terrified about what the news would be. Like, is he sick? Was he dying? Is it is it going on else inside of his body? Like, he was, is he okay? And he just, and it found out he was fine. He's grand. So I went and picked him up. Um. We were told they think it's just a pigmentation in his eye, but just to observe it and to keep, excuse the pun, keep an eye on it. So that's okay. Thank God for that. And then it was, uh, it was decided then that my mother would begin her treatment then in, in the new year. So again, we were at that time in the month where we were trying again for a child. And uh, I had a gig in Newcastle. It was the last one of the year. Uh, so Adele came over with me just for a night away and it was also around her peak ovulation day of the month so we wanted to sort of be together to do what we had to do etc. 
So we were walking around Newcastle on our way to meet a couple of friends of ours for some food and drinks. And as we were walking along, I felt something landing on my head. And it was bored shit. A board had just taken a shit on my head. I just laughed about it. And I just sort of wondered, like, right, is our luck about to change with this happening? And the Christmas period came and went. And 2021, probably the most challenging year of our lives, had come to an end. And into 2022, we went. And on New Year's Day, 2022, Edel took a pregnancy test and she was po- it, it was positive. She was pregnant again. Now, we didn't react too much. Um, we were both happy, of course, but we were sort of scarred by what had happened in the past. Um, we went for a walk near to where we live. And it was so strange. It was like everybody we passed by was smiling at us and said good morning, happy new year. And it was strange. It was like, it was very nice, but it was very strange. It was like, What's going on here? Why is everyone being so nice to us? So anyway, we booked in for an early scan and it was to take place on January 22nd, 2022. And that was my father's six year anniversary. And the night before that, it was announced that Ireland was dropping all of its all of its restrictions with immediate effect. And then that night as well, I just remember having massive now, I saw this name online, it's definitely true, but it's Scanxiety. So it's your, if you have anxiety about the scan and catastrophize and thinking the worst and almost brace, bracing myself for what was happening, what was going to happen so to be prepared and be prepared for the bad news. And I was just terrified that it was going to happen again, that we'd go there and there'd be no heartbeat and we were going to be left heartbroken again. So we drove to... Um, we drove to the the scan and just remember it being a beautiful morning. We went into the scan, went into the scan, filled out the forms. We went into the room and Adele lay on the bed and the get the the girl scanned her scanned her stomach but couldn't find that. And I was just like, oh no, not again! And I start freaking out. And the girl said, look, we'll do an internal scan. So she she asked Adele to go and empty her bladder. She said, look, don't panic. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So Adele Adele emptied her bladder. She returned. And she did the internal scan and then um, suddenly this little figure appeared on the screen along with a little harpy and the girl said congratulations and then um, we were both delighted. Oh, I just couldn't believe it. Nearly getting emotional here even thinking about it but um, both both delighted. Another, another step forward and yeah just a step forward like but again we just sort of it was onto the, you're thinking about the next scan straight away, but just that day, we went out, I went out that night to my dad's, like, I just couldn't believe it, right, the, we've just gone for this scan, we've just got the, her heartbeat has been confirmed and it's my dad's six year anniversary, so that night I went out to meet dad's local, had a great night, but I was so, I was so happy, absolutely buzzing, but I couldn't tell anyone that your dad was pregnant. Because we decided this time that we weren't going to tell anyone, not even our mothers. So, so nobody was being told about this. So Adele then had a follow-up for her uh, laparoscopy and she uh, went for another scan. And this scan was on my birthday, 3rd of February. So we went in, they scanned her and again, everything looked fine. Just like, fucking hell, what a birthday present. Like, I'm getting, I can't, this, like, I'm not used to getting good news. Like, what is going on? This is... Just another step forward. It was unreal. So then, 
we had uh, the 13 week scan at the end of February and it was on the same day that my mother was going in for her hysterectomy as part of her cancer treatment. And again, scan was fine. Um, the baby was due on the 9th of September, 2022. Two years almost to the day that I went in to have the tumour removed. So I had the tumour removed on the 10th of September, 2020. And we were told that our baby was due on the 9th of September, 2022. Now that's <laughs> fucking crazy. Finally, we could tell people, but it was still, it was a little bit bittersweet. Like obviously we were delighted for ourselves, but we also felt like compassion for people who were in a similar position to ourselves and we weren't and weren't having any success with having a baby because we know how it felt. We're like you're happy for people, but you're a little bit good at that. It's not you. But like everything was looking good. We had a number of tests done early on in the pregnancy to make sure everything that was okay and it was and we found out we were having a girl. So we couldn't have had any more reassurance that everything was going to work out. And the pregnancy was going well. And one of my favourite films ever is The Snapper. It's a very famous Irish film. Anyone from Ireland knows what it is. And it's it's about a girl that gets pregnant and has a baby in, in the hospital that we were in, the Rotunda. When we got back to the car after the 13-week scan, the first song that came on the, came on the radio was uh, Papa Don't Preach by Madonna. And it's a song that the main character in the film the snapper sings in a karaoke scene. And we had our 20-week scan at the end of April. And we, when we got into the car to drive into the hospital, the first song that came onto the radio was once again, Papa Don't Preach. So that was the same song had come on twice from my favourite film that was based in the Rotunda hospital where we were going. So it's just universe stuff, crazy, crazy stuff. So anything, think the pregnancy was going well anyway. So in May, I was in Medellin in uh, Colombia for a gig and I was talking to Adele and she said she, she didn't feel well. She said she had pains in her stomach and they just, she didn't feel right. And she said she was going to go into the hospital to make sure everything was okay. And I just, I felt so helpless. Um, I should have been there looking after her, make, making sure she was okay, not thousands of miles away in South America. So her sister had to bring her in. And again, my mind went to overdrive. I'd, I had no idea what was going on. I was just picturing her being given bad news, her crying, her being told that something was wrong and walking around the hotel room, freaking out, not having any idea what was going on. But she was fine. She was grand. They, they told her it was just her uterus expanding. And uh, the next couple of months just went by in no time. Everything was looking good. We had a couple of trips into hospital and stuff, but it was all just precautionary, but everything was everything was looking okay. So it was, everything was good. So in the weeks leading up to the birth, I just started to feel increased level of anxiety, which is, I suppose is perfectly natural, but I just wanted everything to be okay. But I was I was afraid and I was just afraid of something going wrong something happening to Adele or something happening to the baby or if something happened to the two of them and, and, and losing them and that was just it was just it was just something that was just going around my head I just did not want to lose them I wanted them to be okay and for everything to be okay and I did a lot of meditation during this time and I really needed it and I think it really did help coming up to that situation and I made sure as well that any gigs I was doing around this time were local so that I wasn't away in, th in the event of an early arrival. So then on Sunday the 4th of September, I had to bring Adele into the hospital as she thought her waters had broken. So we went in 
and they confirmed that they had and they said that if she didn't have any contractions within 24 hours that we were to return to the hospital at 8 o'clock the next morning. So that's what we did. So we were in the ward all day and Idel was getting monitored but nothing was happening. So then she was sent to the delivery ward that evening so that they could get things moving. And it was here after an internal scan that the midwife realised that there was more waters inside her. And she tried to break them, but she couldn't. So they had to get a male doctor to do it. So a male nurse had to come in to break her waters. And it was honestly, it was one of the worst things I've ever had to see. The amount of pain that was on her face when that was done. I'll never forget it. It was, it was horrible. So like the, the baby's heart weight was drop heart heart rate heart weight heart heart rate was dropping and she was getting distressed and the doctors and their midwives etc they were getting worried for the baby's safety so it was decided there and then that uh, an emergency section would have to take place straight away and like the second we agreed to it, it was like everything just went, happened so quickly so I just had to gather everything together and. Idel was brought into theatre and like they were pretty calm about everything but I was worried like I was worried for the safety of my wife and I was worried for my future daughter and like I did my best to keep it together and I, I do feel like the meditation that I had recently done was paying off so I had to get changed into the gown etc to enter the theatre and I was just left sitting in a tiny little room by myself waiting for the call and I was thinking mad shit the adrenaline was just rushing around my body and I just kept thinking to myself like this is the most important moment of my life and we didn't tell anyone other than Adele's mother that we were going into the hospital so after about 20 minutes of pacing around the hallway beside the little room that I was in I got the call to go in to the theatre it was time so I sat down beside Adele held her hand made sure she was okay so they were performing the section and uh, a couple of minutes later, out came a, a tiny little baby screaming her lungs out. And I pictured it. I dreamt of it. I dreamt of that moment for like over five years. And I was just overcome with emotion. Like we we had finally done it. And our little girl was here. And her, her name was Kaya. And she was born at 22.36 on the 5th of September 2022. And she weighed 3.02 kilos. So they had to like stitch Idel back together. So they brought me over to the table where they like they were examiner and just to make sure everything was as it should be. And it was. And I met my daughter for the first time and she was screaming her head off. So I just reached out and her tiny little hand gripped onto my finger. And they brought me outside for the skin to skin. And I was left sitting in the hallway with my daughter for about 20 minutes. And it just felt so, just so surreal. They were sort of putting Idel back together and stitching and. I brought, brought the baby back in and Idel got to hold her baby for the first time and it was just, it was just unbelievable and I was allowed to stay in like the hospital until like 2am but then I had to drive home, I wasn't allowed to stay in there and I just cried the whole way home in, um, in the car all the way home for 25 minutes, however long it took and I was roaring crying and it wasn't like and upset it just felt like it was like a cleansing it was like every single challenge that we had faced every single bit of bad news the tumours the cancer the setbacks the miscarriage every single thing came out of me at that moment and I just felt cleansed I just could not stop crying it was like we just I could not believe we'd finally done it it was just surreal so I got into bed at like 3 o'clock and fell asleep straight away and then I was back up at 7 o'clock to go back into the hospital and 
I can't describe the high of those first couple of days. It was it was incredible, but it also made me feel a little bit sad because I wanted everyone to experience that feeling. And for some of my friends and for people that I knew that were in the process of trying and hadn't got there yet, they 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 didn't know what it felt like. So I sat there holding Kaya for most of the day while Edel tried to get some rest, but she was she was in a bad way. She was in a lot of pain and with it being an emergency section, the priority was always to get the baby out safely and a lot had happened to her in those few days and she was it was very, very difficult for her mentally and physically. She was dealing with a lot. I just tried to uh just tried to help her and to be there and to do everything I could and as I mentioned a few minutes ago about the my favourite movie being The Snapper. Um and how the song came on that that was in the movie twice as we were going in for the two scans. Well, anyway, I think it was the second day I was in there, or the first day anyway, but I went out to get something to eat and I was walking across O'Connell Street and I was crossing the road to another part. And as I was about to cross the road, a, a, a lady came um, around a corner on a bicycle and turned the corner and had to step back. And I looked at her and I recognised her. And I couldn't believe it. It was the actress that played the midwife in The Snapper, the one who delivered Sharon's baby, cycled past me on the bike. And I just st- started laughing. It was like another another sign from the universe. It was just unbelievable. Couldn't believe it. So anyway, moving forward, um, we brought Kaya home on the 8th. And the first few weeks were um they were really difficult now, I have to say. We were still learning about becoming parents. Edel was in a lot of pain from the section and she got a couple of different infections and she she had an awful time of it. It's, had to bring her back into the hospital a few times and the sleep deprivation was a killer. And I'm in a I'm thankfully I had a few weeks off work to try and help out as much as I can. I didn't have to go anywhere and and like it was really really tough like we we have a two year old golden retriever that still needed his five walks a day and we were, we were like we were adjusting but it was intense but we got through it and we were like okay maybe we got through the first few weeks and then Kaya got colic and it was absolutely fucking horrendous like she screamed the house down every day from like 5pm until midnight and it was it, it was it was unbelievably straight, stressful it's, it, it's, it's it doesn't feel like it's normal it shouldn't be shouldn't be like that where the baby's screaming her head off for seven hours non-stop and there's no consoling her and seeing her in so much pain and there's nothing you can do about it we were given the usual oh it's a phase she'll grow out of it and I just that's 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 rubbish so anyway I looked into some like um, I asked some friends about it and I looked into different methods about how to help with it and we booked her in for a session with a craniosacral therapist to, to help she specializes in colic and and all that type of stuff so she explained to us like look babies can be traumatized from birth and she explained how it happens and she shows us how it's happened and she performed a few different exercises and she showed us a few things to do with Kaya to help so we brought her home that night and she screamed the house down for the rest of, rest of the day and then the next day she woke up and she was like a new baby laughing and joking wasn't screaming the house down so we brought her for two more sessions and she was a lot better then. So we were still sort of learning how to be parents and at, at the same time, at the end of October, I had to go back for my uh, second year CT scan and I was lying down on the machine and um, 
as I was lying down, I was pretty pretty relaxed going into it. I'd done it before. I wasn't really concerned. And I was lying on the machine. I was last like I was asked, Oh, do you have any stents from the operation or anything in there? And I was like, What? No, I don't I don't think so. I don't know. And it really freaked me out. Because I I didn't really know what they were talking about. Like, had had they found something else in there? Like, are they not telling me they have they, did they see something else in there? And but it really freaked me out. A comment really threw me off and she said look it's nothing to worry about it's just like it looks like a metallic object and she's like it's like evidence of surgery and I was like still my mind went into absolute overdrive and like until I got that results I couldn't put my mind at ease and it's always going to be like that for me it's every year it's going to be the same like I'm always going to worry that it's going to come back that I'm going to get it again that I'm going to die the next time it might mightn't be as less dangerous as it was the last time I'm a, I'm a it's it's just hard it's it's always going to be there but it comes in waves and like I wouldn't think about it for a few days and then it would come back and then my mind is filling in the blanks and I'm imagining what they see in the screen and I'm catastrophizing thinking the worst and I'm a master at that and I was still waiting for the results anyway and um Still waiting, no news, probably no news is good news when it comes to stuff like that because if you're not getting a result, it's obviously not a priority. So then I had to go away on tour to Australia for 10 days, 11, 10 or 11 days and that was really hard being away that long from my daughter. Just felt like I should have been at home helping out and I should have been at home helping out being at that, not, not in Australia being away but at the same time my work's my work and that's the way it is. There's not much I can do about it. But it was really, really hard. But I was so excited to get home. So I sent the next couple of weeks all the time with her. Just trying to... She's, her little personality was developing. Her She's laughing and joking more. She, you're getting a laugh out of her. All that stuff. And it's it was just... You just see her little personality developing. It was it was great. So then on the, the 20, 20th of December, 20th of December, I had my follow-up consultation with the with the surgeon. But my mind had been put at ease a little bit because uh, his secretary told me, look, you can do it over the phone. So if it wasn't as bad, probably would have got me in to discuss it in person. So it was all right. Still, though, I was thinking the worst and it's always going to be like that. As I said, I'll always have that fear that I will come back, especially now that I have a daughter. I want to be here for as long as I can for her for my wife to be a dad, to be here for as long as I can. So he called me and he just said, yeah, look, everything is fine. He said, you're doing well. He said, look, you're probably going to be monitored for the rest of your life, but you're doing really well. And I was just so relieved. And um, he asked me how I was and how things were. And I just said, yeah, things are great. We had our first daughter in, in September, naturally. And he was absolutely delighted. He was delighted when I told him because he knew what we were going through and he knew we had gone down the IVF route and all that type of stuff. And we, we had our daughter naturally. Um, he was just delighted. And But I was feeding Kaya when he called. She was in my arms and I had him in speaker as, as I was doing the call. And as soon as the call ended, I was just overcome with emotion. Um, it, just, it just reminded me of everything that we had gone through. And I just got the news that like I was clear again after two years and everything we had gone through and here I am with my daughter in my arms and I'm feeding her and it was it was just I find it hard to describe it's just everything that we've been through over the past couple of years or the last five years 
just all came to a head at that moment and to have my daughter in my arms at that moment in time is it's they're the moments that life's all about. That's what I, that's what this whole story had been about. That moment, coming to that moment where she was here, we brought her into the world and we'd done it. We'd had success. Everything we'd been through, all that fear, all that worry, all that self-doubt, it was gone. We'd done it. So then, on December 22nd, it was announced that the track Take This had been voted as Tune of the Year on a State of Trance for 2022. What an ending to the year. And that was the first time that I ever spoke publicly about all the stuff that I'd gone through with regard to the tumour, etc. And I was asked how the song came about and I said how the original of the track had had such a huge effect on me, especially the line that says, tell me you have a plan because it's not clear. And I think that lyric sort of just symbolised that period of my life with the lockdown, being out of work, my health issues, the fertility issues, all that type of stuff. It just, it, it really did resonate with me. But here's the thing, I'm not sure what would have happened if I didn't have that time off from work and if I wasn't out of work for 18 months. Like, would that humour have ever even been found? I don't know. So, like, to be honest, now I'm really, really thankful for that time of reset. And coming back to the tune of the year stuff, my track, Kaya, was voted in at number seven and it was the highest instrumental, non-vocal track in the entire chart. And this was the track that I had started in the days after we had gone through the miscarriage. And for the track itself, I couldn't actually give the track a name until she was born. I was far too superstitious for that. And just a couple of things about that track. I took a sample of Kaya's heartbeat from one of our earlier scans and I put it into the track just before the breakdown. And the little vocal sample in the breakdown, which says they're getting ready to join you in this beautiful life adventure, was sampled from the fertility meditation that we did every single night before going to bed. They're getting ready to join you in this beautiful life adventure. So the track Kaya is a hugely personal track and it's one that symbolises everything that we went through over the past few years. I'm not sure if I really emphasised how hard those dark times were throughout the podcast. The continuous feeling of failure that came every single month of not having a child. It was so hard. It was heartbreaking to see what Edel had to go through to try and bring a baby into the world. Especially those IVF cycles. All the needles, all the drugs, all of it going into our body, it was horrible. And we did all of those cycles through lockdown, which was bad enough as it was. And she made so many sacrifices to give herself the best opportunity of having success. So she went from IVF, needles and medication to acupuncture, reflexology and meditation. And she was constantly researching ways to help our situation. And I remember one particular time, I think it was just after the fourth failed cycle of IVF. And I walked into our room and Edel was lying on the bed reading another fertility book. And it really did hit me at that moment and it really did break my heart. And I had to go into the other room so that she didn't see me crying. And one of the best things about having Kaya has been how happy it has made Edel. Like she wanted to be a mother more than anything else in the world. And I'm so grateful for the fact that her wish finally did come true. Because nobody deserves it more. She's had to deal with so much shit over the last few years. And she was the one that had to hold everything together. She's a natural mother. And Kaya is very, very lucky to have her. I feel like we've both let go of all that sadness since Kaya has been born. Now don't get me wrong, parenthood is hard, it's tiring, it's relentless, but it's something that we wanted for so long. And the challenges and the troubles that we faced along the way, they only really add to our level of gratitude for Kaya. And one of the best things about becoming a parent is that you no longer think about yourself and your own imaginary issues as you did. It's not about you anymore. 
you're no longer the main character in the story. It's all about the child, and that's pretty liberating. Still, it's not easy, and the first few months have been crazy, especially the first couple of months, where at times I felt like I really was losing the plot. <laughs> I remember one particular time when we were out for a walk with Kaya and the dog, and it was lashing rain, and we had to go home because Kaya was crying uncontrollably. So I'm at the front door with a screaming baby, and I'm trying to control a hyperactive golden retriever so that I could dry him with a towel before going back in. So I open the front door. I'm trying to get the baby in the house out of the rain while she's screaming, crying. But Harvey decides to run away and he starts doing laps at the front garden in the lashing rain. So I'm shouting at him to get back and the house alarm goes off because the front door has been left open too long and Kai is still screaming. And at that moment, I really did feel like I was losing my mind. But Edel just burst out laughing at the complete absurdity of the whole moment. House alarm blaring, a screaming child, a dog running around the front garden in torrential, torrential rain doing laps. And I swear to God, all that was missing was the Benny Hill team tune. So just to finish off with a few words on becoming a parent, it hasn't been easy. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that every day is sunshine and rainbows because it's not. And I feel like I've aged about 10 years since Kaya was born. It's hard work. It's harder than I ever thought it would be, but at the same time, it's extremely fulfilling. And I've started to realise how much time we had before, and now that is all gone. So all of our time now is dedicated to raising our little girl. And on top of that, we have a main coon cat who needs his, he needs his attention. And we have a two-year-old golden retriever that looks for constant attention, along with his four to five walks a day. But I'm truly grateful for the fact that I don't have to work a normal nine-to-five job and that I have the freedom and the opportunity to be at home and to help out. And I've, I've barely done any studio work since last September. I did manage to get in for, for a bit of time in February in the lead up to a state of trance, but in comparison to what I was doing before, my time is really, really limited. So I've had to sort of, <laughs> I've had to really just roll with, roll with the punches over the past few months with regards to making music. It's been an absolute roller coaster. I wouldn't, but I wouldn't change any of it for the world. And for the people out there, that are having difficulties in bringing a child into the world. I know how it feels. I know how hard it is. And I know how hard it is to keep hope in such a difficult situation. But you really do have to. We were told by numerous doctors and so-called experts that we would never have a child. But we did. And we had our child naturally. And we were told by various doctors that that would never happen. So you need to trust your own instincts. You need to do your own research. And just try and do everything you can to enhance your chances and to optimise your health. And doctors aren't always right. They're only human. And if I'd listened to the multiple doctors and not used my own instincts or done my own research and also gone with Edel's recommendation of Dr. Ramsey in the UK, then I'm not sure that I would even be here to tell this story. Now, I know that might seem a bit far-fetched, but I honestly do not know. But one thing is for certain. We, I wouldn't be a father and we wouldn't be blessed with our little girl, Kaya. And I hope that you can take some hope from me sharing our story with you today. And I really do hope that you all get the opportunity to be blessed with children of your own. Becoming a parent, it has changed me, I have to be honest. And like, I just want to be as healthy as I possibly can. I very rarely drink anymore. And 90% of the shows that I'm doing, I'm doing them completely sober. And that's been like that since Kaya, before Kaya was even born. Since around August of last year. I just, I've made the decision where like, I just see, see DJing and stuff as my job and my work. Like it's, I don't see it as me going to party or to get hammered or any of that stuff anymore. That's, it's, it's not how I see it anymore. My perspective on life has changed.
And it's like, if you'd have told me like a couple of years ago that I'd be doing 90% of my show sober and without a drink, I probably wouldn't have believed you because I spent so many years uh, drinking while I played and it's it's just a completely new experience but it's 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 pretty nice to be honest it's nice to be fresh all the time like I can go go play a show and say if it's in America or somewhere I can go to bed after I play get up and go to the gym and I feel absolutely great like the alcohol is such a damaging effect in your body now don't get me wrong I still like a drink and I like going for a point or I'll have there'll be a couple of gigs a year where I will have a drink and I'm not bad mountain alcohol but for me I'm just enjoying the experience of being sober doing a lot of these shows, like the likes of State of Trance and the bigger shows that I did in Thailand in February. I'm doing these completely sober. And the bigger shows, I find a lot easier to do sober. It's the shows that are a bit more intimate that I find a little bit harder. I get a little bit more self-conscious when people are a little bit closer to me. But it's something that I'll work on and it's all good. Like I feel content and I feel satisfied with life in a way that I sort of didn't before Kaya was here. Because so, I sort of always felt like something was missing and I had to go through some pretty tough times to get to this stage. But that's the way it was meant to be and I wouldn't change anything that's happened in the past. And with regards to myself as well, anxiety is something that I've experienced the effects of for a long time and at times it's been like fairly chronic. And throughout the years, like especially for certain years from say... I first got it in like 2009 was when I started to experience it really bad. And again, about a year after my father died in 2016. So in 2017, I started to get it really, really bad again. And I always, but in addition to experiencing anxiety with regards to your normal life, I always just felt like my body was trying to tell me that something was wrong. And from my experience with acupuncture, and through uh, traditional medicines and stuff, I've learned that certain emotions are linked to an organ in your body. And the main emotion that's attached to kidney is fear. So fear is basically anxiety. So to be honest with you now, I no longer experience anxiety in the same way as before. Yes, there, there would be like fleeting moments here and there, but it's absolutely nowhere to the same extent of before. And if you would have told me, at the beginning of 2020, that over the next couple of years, that I would go through a pandemic, I'd go through various lockdowns, I'd be out of work for 18 months, I'd be diagnosed with a tumour, which turned out to be cancer, I'd have a kidney removed, I'd go through four unsuccessful rounds of IVF, a miscarriage, all the mental and physical struggles that come with that, and either after all of that, that 2022 would end up being the best year of my life, which is sort of hard to believe as I was so used to being challenged in every way, but that's the way it turned out. 2022 turned out to be the best year of my life. And I'm just so grateful that we have our little girl um, in the world. And I really want to thank you all for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I, I hope that my story and our story has resonated with you. I know there's a lot of people that will be going through um, similar situations with regard to your fertility. I'm sure there's people listening in that have experienced some of the health uh, com complications or health situations that I've gone through in the past few years. Um, just a just a thing as well. If if you have any concerns about your health, if you find a lump or anything like that, or if there's anything you're worried about, please just go and get it checked because it's. I know some people are afraid of getting bad news so they put off going to a doctor or getting stuff checked. But if you have anything like that, 
please just go and get checked because if I didn't go and get checked, I do not, as I said before, I really do not know if I'd be here today to tell this story. But thankfully I did and thankfully I was looked after and thankfully um, our daughter is here in the world. So once again, thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast and until next time, take care.